Welcome to Cinema Journal Presents ACA Media. I am Christine Becker. And I am Michael Gackman. And we have to, I think maybe we started out our last episode this way, then we're going to start out this episode again with an apology. Like, sorry, it's been so long, and this has been excessively long. We might have to apologize um, for apologizing pretty soon. We might have to, yeah. The, the like, like spiraling apologies. Because um, I, I actually went to our website and realized this is only our fifth episode this year, and we didn't mm. intend to turn this into a quarterly podcast um, we're not trying to sync up with Cinema Journal. Uh, it's just circumstances, right? Things happen. Things do happen. It's been um, been a lot of travel and a lot of uh, uh, unexpected obligations, but the ACA Media team is growing, and we're uh, reaching out into some new and interesting directions. So uh, we're actually yes. going to have some pretty cool stuff coming up soon. Yeah, we have both. We're going to have uh, at least one interview in the can for the next episode, which I'm going to tease. There's a certain person who used to be the editor of Cinema Journal, who is really? no longer the editor of Cinema Journal, and I got oh. exclusive access to him. So uh, so that'll be in the next episode. And then, yeah, we have a few things in the works, a few ideas for um, especially letting other people interview people and to kind of broaden out uh, what we do and who you hear from. So those are fun things that we promise we will Get back on track uh, in the in the near future. So, how are things going in London? It's going very good. I'm uh, I'm I'm to the point now where I'm I'm thinking sadly of how much time I have left. I only have six weeks left, so mm. I got to make the most of it in the remaining time. Well, South Bend is really nice right now. I well, South Bend for Christmas. You know, that's that's a special thing that I know when I say that. You know, South Bend for Christmas. <laughs> a lot of just, eye rolling. Yeah, yeah. So forget about, you know, seeing Herod's at Christmas and, you know, Germany at Christmas. It's South Bend for Christmas. That's that's what I got in my future. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah. Well, we we will be happy to have you back. Yeah. Oh, you know, there's things I miss, of course. You know, not much, but but something. So oh. So are you watching yeah. any uh, uh British telly? Um, I am. There's a few series I've been watching. Mostly that's tied to a downside that had an upside. The downside is I, I'm just getting over a bad cold. And last week I had, mm. had a really bad cold and spent much more time than I would want to on the couch. You know, when you're in London, you don't want to be in your flat lying on the couch. But I did watch a lot of TV and especially like daytime TV of my favorite thing is British quiz shows. British, British quiz shows, especially on the BBC, are really amazing because they're they first of all are, are kind of geared around honoring actual intellect not just entertainment. And then there are so many of them because it's a relatively cheap thing to, to put on mm-hmm. that you have to have really clever premises. You know, you have to come up with all kinds of really fun rules and wrinkles and different rounds and so forth. And so it's, it's the kind of beautiful combination of formulaic genre television with the need to innovate in those genres because there's so much of it and it's wonderful. So pointless, impossible, uh, you know, mastermind, um, university challenge, just endless stream of, of wonderful entertainment to lie on the couch and watch. Wow, nice. That mm-hmm. sounds good. We were um, in my TV history class, which you often teach as, as well. Um, of course, we were watching 50s quiz shows where you have, mm-hmm. uh, you know, these, these really arcane questions about, you know, compound questions where where somebody's asked to name all of the characters and their aliases from half a dozen different Sherlock Holmes short stories. Ooh, nice. Um, which, of course, you know, all the students in the class are like, 
uh, this is totally rigged, <laughs> right? Because because <laughs> they can't imagine ever getting getting one of those. Um, but it mm-hmm. sounds like it's in some ways a kind of similar sort of sort of premise where you have these kind of specialized topic areas where where the contestant is more of an expert than a than just a sort of random you know person mm-hmm. off the street. Yeah, that's certainly the case, like Mastermind is an example, where you have some super arcane level of knowledge, and they ask you questions about that. But the other one that I think of, of what you described, there's a show called Pointless, and which is a beautiful title for that's any television show. That's actually a really, show. really great title. Well, and they, ha- they have a celebrity edition, and they call it Pointless Celebrities, um, which is oh, also brilliant. Good. But so the concept is you try to answer, and, and any question has multiple answers to it, and you try to find the most obscure answer. So they've surveyed 100 people, and you try to find the one that none of those 100 have said. And so it's things like um, like a simple one they do is they'll pick a movie. So, um, you know, Sherlock Holmes, the movie, you know, with Robert Downey Jr., mm-hmm. and you have to name someone who's listed in the cast of that movie according to IMDb. So you don't want to say Robert Downey Jr. because... 85 of those 100 people are going to say it. You want to get the pointless answer. And the episode I was watching, it was Pointless Celebrity. Well, it was Pointless Celebrity Edition. And the guy who was on, like, had a buddy, an actor buddy, who he knew had a bit part in it. It was even like a boxer who had been in this movie. And so he named that guy. And then he joked and he said, like, unless that guy's mom was one of the 100 who was surveyed, (laughs) this is definitely going to be a pointless answer. And it was. And so it's really fun to watch because you're trying to guess um, not just the answers, but who, who, what is the most obscure? What would be the toughest, most yeah. um, you know, specialist bit of knowledge within a specialist category? And that's just that's great. So oh, that is so good. It's like the reverse Family Feud. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which, yeah. Which so, is so distinctly British. You know, that in is, the way in which Family Feud is so distinctly American, right? That is perfect. That's you've just given me like a great pairing for a class. Like Family Feud is America, Pointless is British, and even the name Pointless, like the kind of cynicism of like taking yeah. the piss out of something and saying it's pointless. That's you. Yeah, you've just d- done me a lesson plan right oh, there. Oh well, I, I, you've done me a favor too because now I got to watch this show. Yeah, yeah, it's very good. I'm sure it's on YouTube or something like that. It's a very popular show, um, and as far as you know, it airs like five fifteen. It airs in the in the late afternoon, and it's, and it's still you know up there in the in the rating. So it's nice. it's it's uh, justifiably popular. Okay, well you've improved well, my day already, so I'm well, grateful and I'm, for that. I'm glad we did. You know, we we were finally podcasting again, and this could help save me time with lesson planning now. I've just now combined tasks of podcasting and lesson planning, so this is paying off already. We are here but to serve. Yeah, we are going to serve our listeners now with some great content. Uh, nice I know transition. people say they hate that really, word now. Really content. nice segue. Really nice segue. Is that segue. good? Yeah. All right. Yeah. And I'm out of practice, too. Yeah. Came up with that all on my own. Um, but yeah, we've got two, well, actually we've got one interview and then one very special segment, an offering. Um, so the, first of all, the interview is from Amanda Lotz, who I think needs no introduction. We'll give her one, but you probably know her and her very prolific work. So I got a chance to Skype with her and chat about her. She's got a new book out. She's got another book coming. She's got a podcast. And, um, I especially wanted to, to talk to her about her, her podcast because, we have a podcast, and uh, I, I think people should know about our podcast. And then in connection with that podcast is our second, or the idea of a podcasting is our second segment. I heard from Brandon Arroyo, who has a, a new podcast called Porno Cultures Podcast, 
And uh, he was telling us about it, and I thought, wow, it'll be really great to, to feature this on our podcast and send people to it. So he has prepared a special introduction to his podcast for us, as well as an interview segment. So very special content Excellent. here today. Well, let's get started. Yeah, Amanda Lott's up first. Amanda D. Lotz is professor in the Department of Communication Studies at the University of Michigan and fellow at the Peabody Media Center. She is the author, co-author, or editor of eight books that explore television and media industries, including The Television Will Be Revolutionized and Portals, a treatise on internet distributed television. I'm happy to welcome to the podcast Amanda Lotz. Good afternoon, Amanda. Very glad to be here. Thanks. We're thrilled to be able to talk to you, you know, and especially this time of year, I'm glad we got to talk to you during fall because this is uh, a fascinating time to be uh, studying television. We're at the start of the fall season here. And this is coming on the heels of a pretty incredible summer of news uh, from Disney, Netflix, just all over the place of news of changes. So I'm curious about where your perspective is here at the start of the fall network season and specifically network television. Is this um, is this the beginning of the end of network television? Is it in the middle? Are we not you know, are we wrong to assume anything is anywhere in in a cycle of ending? Those are all very good questions. And I have to say that the launch of the broadcast season really just isn't much of a bellwether for me anymore. And I think increasingly that's the case for audiences as well. I think the past two seasons in particular, uh, the early Nielsen numbers uh, indicate some really sharp declines, which doesn't mean that people aren't watching. It's really, I think, a function of just changing behaviors that are related to the the many different ways that we can now view. But I think in terms of like, is this the beginning, the middle, the end, what? Um, I think I'm viewing it as the beginning of the middle, or maybe now the middle of the middle of the entire sort of post-network evolution. And so, you know, importantly there, broadcast is just one industry or one sector of this larger television industry. And I include services such as Netflix and Amazon Video that are clearly offering content that we understand as television. They are television providers. They're not often some separate internet industry. And so, you know, in talking about what's going on in the television industries, you know, I think it's sort of a matter of attending to what we're seeing through broadcast, cable, and internet distribution. But then on the other side, the important thing to remember is that in most cases, the content is still coming from the same handful of studios, many of which are owned by those same broadcast, cable, and internet outlets. So um, the connections actually are, are far greater than we might imagine from how we experience the, these sources of television as viewers. When you said you, you no longer look to then the fall season as this bellwether, especially given how wide ranging the industry is now, and given that and how many changes we did see this summer, um, what do you look to then? If there and I suppose there isn't a bellwether, a single one, or or um, you know canary in the coal mine or something like that. But um, what in the say the next six months to a year, what are you paying close attention to in order to track what kind of changes are most relevant coming forward? Well, um, number one is what happens with net neutrality, um, because that probably is the biggest indicator of what can continue to happen for Internet distributed television. And an elimination of net neutrality will very much change 
Netflix market position. Um, there's no way that they can absorb the costs that will come with Comcast and other internet service providers demanding fees for Fastlane. So um, anything on the regulatory end is most likely to cause the biggest disruption. Um, in terms of, you know, there's not so much even a, a season that you pay attention to. It was odd that there were so many announcements in August. Um, it was actually somewhat breathtaking. Um, but these have been happening for a while now. Um, the launch of new portals, um, you know, and in many cases, I, I, I will wait and see what happens, right? So Disney made some big announcements, but, you know, there's not much to say yet until we actually see what comes to market what contents in those libraries? What is the price point? So, you know, that to, in my regard, there's a lot of news and announcements that are only interesting at a speculative level. I think the thing actually that happened this summer that many people may have missed that actually could have some um, really uh, significant importance was Disney's purchase of a company called BamTech, um, which is the technology infrastructure that's been spun out from Major League Baseball. Uh, major League Baseball was the first um, major video streaming service, interestingly enough. And BamTech has actually, it's the infrastructure that HBO Go was running on, I think that's right. It's either HBO Go or HBO Now. Our hockey runs its service on it, WWE Network. Um, so this is the these are these companies that we don't really see as consumers, um, but they've been really crucial to establishing the infrastructure that make these streaming services work well. And so the big tech players like Netflix and Amazon, they have their own proprietary systems for the most part, but many of the other smaller entities have been running on BAM tech. Um, and so Disney's purchase of, of that technology is, is interesting to me in the, in the sense that, one, it makes sense given the announcements Disney made, but also sort of the potential that Disney now has to, to really control that technology and perhaps not share it with competitors. So uh, we're definitely getting to a point where the competitive environment is getting more and more complicated, well, well away from the types, talking about the types of shows that we see on screen. Yeah, I think that's an important point because our way usually, you know, as observers is to think of this in terms of content, especially notions of like exclusive content, exclusive programming, but the notion of the technology, so both exclusivity and the technology, and then as you say, the issue of net neutrality, raising issues about literally paying for things, those are things we don't think about much. And so it's, I'm really glad you raised that because that seems very important. Um, you also mentioned the word portals, and I wanted to uh, to pause there, and especially for those who aren't aware of your book, uh, the book you published earlier this year entitled Portals, a treatise on internet distributed television. So for, can you tell us what you mean by this label portals and what led you to use this to distinguish what portals are as something separate from what we might consider perhaps channels? All right, so portals was the outgrowth of um, trying to make sense of, of the, the statement I made quite casually earlier in our conversation that I regard Netflix and Amazon as offering forms of television and film. Um, hopefully at some, some point very soon that becomes a very uncontroversial statement to make. Um, but I think as I started, it was in response to this perception, both within the industry, I'm not sure the academy is pretty broad, but that 
um, new media was coming throughout the first decade of the 21st century. Um, it was going to kill television. Uh, and by you know 2012, we, we started to see actually how this was going to work out. And what I was seeing work out was actually no, no one was dead. Um, but in fact, the internet was actually far more a distribution technology uh, that now offered something to television and film that hadn't been available to f before, rather than the notion that the internet is some sort of new medium. And so from there, in, in trying to you know, further explain uh, the ways in which services such as Netflix and Amazon are, are like and different, I think because what's tricky is we think first of technology, but the other thing that's very much changing or changes what they can do is the fact that they're running on a business model that actually hasn't dominated in the US, a subscriber-funded model as opposed to advertising. And so in the process of sort of pulling all those things apart, I needed a word, right? So we have networks uh, historically to talk about the connections between broadcast stations. We have channels often used in reference to cable channels. Uh, and I, I just wanted a word so I didn't have to say internet distributed television services every single time. So for me, portals are the equivalent of channels or networks, but they denote video services that are delivered uh, using IP protocol. And I'm curious, given how much all this stuff changes, your book just came out this year. Is there anything like that has happened since that already you would think, oh, I wish I'd been able to put that in that book? Or is it, did you write it well enough, in fact, that you've sort of covered your, your bases? That's a good question. Uh, it's It's... The book itself is actually somewhat a, a strange thing. So it's, we should note, a short book. Um, and it was sort of, it, it grew out of the larger project that I had been working on and have finished more recently, um, which is a book that will be out in uh, probably March or April. And that book is geared more to a general audience. But in the process of trying to figure out uh, what had happened with internet distributed television, I, I needed to write it in kind of academic terms. And it's, it's a deep dive, I think, even for uh, the general SCMS community. It's, it's a bit businessy, a little bit, you know, perhaps verging into the land of economics. I talk a lot about business models and revenue strategies. But I think the thing that's driving my interest in those things is coming from a, a perspective that if you change the way media are delivered and you change the way that they're meant to be commercialized, you change the type of content that can be produced. And so uh, this is the, the story that explains why U.S. television has changed so profoundly over the last two decades. So uh, to answer your question, um, has, Portal, ha has much changed? I don't think so, uh, although I, actually, I also haven't been looking back at it closely in terms of the, the focus is really on uh, different business models, and so there's more to say. I think one place where my, my thinking has continued to evolve uh, is in relation to how I use Henry Jenkins' uh, work in, in the book. Earlier in 2017, I was, I was not fully on board with uh, Jenkins' distinction of uh, media really as audiovisual, uh, the written word, sound, vis you know, visual images like in, in photography, uh, that he, he, that's, those are the, his classifications for different kinds of media. And I thought it was more helpful to still maintain the notion of that television and film are different forms of audiovisual media. 
as things have played out over the course of the year, uh, I, I think those distinctions actually between film and television are becoming increasingly fuzzy um, in this new distribution realm. Not just, you know, so I think we kind of instinctively think, well, because of where you watch it or how long it is and things like that. But, but actually, the fact that we're starting to see some shifts in industrial practices as well that, that are making what I think for scholars have long been clearly two different media, although for um, not particularly obvious or defensible reasons, I think actually Jenkins probably had it right all along um, and that audiovisual uh, is probably the better category for thinking about audio um, for, of media communication or types of communication. Well, actually, you went exactly where I wanted to head next because I uh, had the luxury of seeing you speak a couple of weeks ago here in London at the Trans TV conference at University of Westminster, and and you warned us at the start that you were going to have a provocation um, in your talk, and it was along the lines of what you're talking about here. And so I wonder if sort of after giving that talk, did, do you have anything to add to that, or do you kind of still feel like that's provocative? Well, no one threw me out, so that's good. Um, I haven't received hate mail yet. Uh, who knows what they're saying behind my back? Uh, the talk probably would have gone differently at SCMS. So I will say as a, as a television scholar, or as someone who studies television, um, and who, someone who studies television of a certain generation, the notion of television studies is important in a way that speaks to an experience of coming up in academia and constantly having to defend one's object of study. And actually, I must acknowledge at the outset that I and my generation had it much easier than those who came before and fought those battles even harder. And likewise, there continues to be uh, sort of this perception of, of film in some quarters as, as superior to television. And my approach has been basically just to ignore those conversations. Um, but I think, you know, I think it is, it would be controversial to many people to open up a category of, of thinking to, as audiovisual media, um, as opposed to, you know, building our barriers around television and film. And I think that's what I'm after is, as an academic exercise is, is the making, making it strange rather than continuing to assume these categories that explain things actually perhaps well in the 1950s and perhaps have actually been explaining things decreasingly well for a period of time, but that it, it you know, it takes a while to get to this crisis point. And again, you know, I'm, I'm not throwing everything, you know, out the window so much as wondering you know, how our thinking could be more sophisticated if we didn't narrow ourselves into these silos and we were willing to think about other ways to organize audiovisual content that might be as uh, equally meaningful for certain questions as you know, dividing into film and television. And you know, I think we're still really confused as to what to do with what gets called digital, um, but... Uh, content distributed uh, over the internet that does not look exactly like uh, television or follow the industrial formations of television. Right, that's, that's a mouthful. That's a long one to, to fit on a label. Um, well, and also I wanted to ask you about, you know, I think media industry studies itself is at a really fascinating point right now, thriving in a way, you know, and, and seeing the growth of media industri industry studies, I think has been really fun. Um, and I wanted to tie that into that you yourself have a podcast, Media Business Matters. So I'm curious about what made you want to start a podcast and then where do you see that as kind of situated within your academic output? 
Well, where did it come from? In, in ways, I, I guess you could say I've been slow to adopt uh, some technology. I think part of that has just been progression to through career space and how uh, career space was timed with personal life. And so when many people were jumping on blogs, um, I was having babies and trying to keep up my publications. Um, and so I think part of it is, is recently coming to a point in, in life where I had a little bit more time um, and also reaching the stage of full professor and, and having the freedom to uh, jump through hoops in a different order or perhaps not jump through hoops anymore. And I think a lot of the things that I study are broadly interesting to people. Um, there's more talk about television and Netflix than I think there, there's ever been about television before. And uh, wanting to explain from an industrial perspective um, why people were seeing what they were seeing. I mean, there's many people who uh, do a great job exploring the nuances of what we have in terms of text and writing great criticism, um, but often with very little acknowledgement about why that is happening. And so sort of felt like I had something to say, but I also felt like I was spending a whole lot of time writing as it was. Um, and so I didn't want to start a blog. Um, and I also agonized tremendously over what actually I put in print, uh, much more than what comes out of my mouth, although that perhaps shouldn't be the case. And so um, I think the podcast was sort of a way to and, you know, just, just try something different. And I, I also felt like there was a space between different podcasts about media that already existed that, that I could step into. And so uh, KCRW stopped doing the spinoff, but they had a show that was sort of about current business. And then because they're KCRW in, in LA, they often had an interview. Um, but the other thing that I was finding is that as the dynamics of digital distribution and economic models have hit the trade journals or the trade press for these industries. And the journalism that used to be possible just happens very rarely. Um, so that even now, most of variety, um, broadcasting and cable such that it still exists. You now it's, it's just announcements of, you know, Disney's going to do this rather than actual journalism. And so what I really wanted to do with the podcast was nothing timely, um, but to focus on sort of broader trends and things that were happening and use it as a space to talk about why that matters. Um, and so not just reporting of news or sort of recent events, uh, but something that was more conceptual and placed those kind of announcements in some sort of context. Yeah, and, and I found it tremendously helpful to listen. And we should know, especially since we've only talked about television here, um, you've had episodes either yourself talking about them or you've had guests and guest speakers on film and music and theater. Um, so I find it a really great glimpse and especially to make connections among some of the changes happening in each industry. So that's been it's been really helpful for that. No, and it's been it's it's fun and educational for me too, and I think that's also coming, something coming out of the projects that have been so focused on television and having thought about issues of how digital distribution changes the television business. Um, I'm now at a point where I'm most curious about you know, taking this into other industries um, because the 
there are just these curious similarities and yet stark differences. And there's so much to be mined there, but I think any given scholar can can barely wrap their, their head around any one industry. And so any kind of comparative work like that is, is pretty tough. So, so yeah, I'm trying um, to, to think and talk more broadly than just about television. We're starting, uh, we're doing a series, um, we've just posted the first one, it should probably run through the next couple months, on public media. Um, and so we'll have a lot of interviews there with um, different people who've had different roles working in U.S. and I think we've even got a, a, a Brit lined up um, to talk about how digital distribution has created new challenges for public service media. Well, um, one last question then. You, you, so you mentioned earlier you've got a forthcoming book, and I will give the title, We Now Disrupt This Broadcast, How Cable Transformed Television and the Internet Revolutionized It All. Um, so what do we have to look forward to reading in that one? It is a 20-year chronology, um, beginning in 1996, going up through 2016, that's focused on explaining the business um, behind why television changed. So the evolution, there's really two key pivot points. The first is cable moving into producing original scripted series, um, which we, I think at this point, just assume happened forever, but really doesn't happen until 1996 and really with um, significance until 2002. Uh, those who are as old as I am can remember that cable was, I mean, cable programming was the butt of jokes, right? Um, and, and even as late as the mid 90s. And so to go from that status to really becoming um, the, the pinnacle of television quality. It's, that piece itself is an amazing story. And that all plays out really before internet distribution comes along. And so that's the other big pivot that really I date to 2010 as really being the inflection point there. Uh, so the book is about, it's, pin, it's pitched around a variety of series, but often uses those series to explain something that was happening in the television business behind the scenes. And probably the most significant thing is really the steady shift away from the industry being reliant on advertising, um, but in various ways, increasingly more and more reliant on subscriber fees, and not just for someone like HBO, but for the uh, for the broadcast industry now as well, with retransmission fees that start in, in 2007, um, as well as um, vertical integration and intellectual property licensing. So, um, you know, there's lots of talk about how advertising is down, but these industries are, are, are not hurting because they have steadily diversified their revenue model, um, despite the fact we haven't paid much attention to that. Well, and that gives us even more things to pay attention to as we go forward. So what um, what do you have on the horizon then as far as your next, not to make you write another book because you're so <laughs> prolific, but um, do you have anything in the works that you're uh, looking forward to? Not immediately. Um, I, it, it was a, as they, it, it, it's still too soon, right? Uh, had the experience <laughs> of the, the final slog with a book and uh, right. I had to promise myself I'd never write another one in order to finish it. <laughs> Um, and right now I'm, I'm toying with some ideas. They're all somewhat out of my comfort zone. Um, but also to that point about career stage, um, I, I'm interested in opportunities to do collaborative work because I've been tired of being holed up by myself. So, um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm certainly watching the regulatory space and, and issues about Internet television and policy, I think, will be you know, big questions for the next decade in the U.S. as well as pretty much everywhere around the world. So 
it's not my strong suit, but I'm very interested in that. And then I'm also interested in continuing to do work uh, comparing and developing better understandings of the digital transition for other media industries uh, such that it is um, at this point. Okay, great. Well, we'll we'll have a little time to catch up on reading your work then before you get the next one out. So so we have that benefit. All right. Thanks so much for uh, taking time to chat with us. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that was a very fun conversation. It's always great to talk to Amanda and she's got such fascinating ideas and I love the stuff she's studying is these changes happening in front of us right now and the slipperiness of trying to pin those down, like her point about will you know, should we have separate labels anymore for television or film? Should it be just audiovisual content? And those are those are tough questions to answer. It's it's tough to pin down. It is tough. And and you know, because well, and again, I suppose like you, I tend to think about these things historically. And mm. so much of our understanding of like the the sort of deep cultural residues of, of television, you know, whether we put big scare quotes around it or whatever, mm-hmm. is about a, um, a kind of invocation of different kinds of scales of community in ways mm-hmm. that, I don't know, I think it's still, even when you're Netflixing, um, <laughs> I think it's still a little different from, um, from a film, but, um, mm-hmm. and of course then there are other kinds of television that, that, um, much more directly connect into the you know older traditions of um, TV as being live and simultaneous and um, mm-hmm. much more overtly invoking a, a the audience as a, as part of a, a shared community of address. But yeah. it's tricky. And I think that's it is, and I think that's actually a really fascinating angle for study going forward. Is not just you know because Amanda brought up aspects of it's not just about programs; mm-hmm. it's about distribution and platforms and technology, and kind of subtext to a lot of her interview too was also the audience and the notion that you raise of communities. And I think that's a fascinating way going forward to study and not just fan communities. Um, right, and that's become like a really fantastic realm of study now is, is fan studies, but even just whatever we would call you know, average viewership throughout all these various communities. Um, I think that's a really rich area of study. So get working on those dissertations, kids. That's right. All right, but we are not finished. We have other kinds of communities to talk about. In fact, we're going to podcast about podcasting, and maybe then we'll maybe be able to kind of podcast about that. And then apologize. Yeah. We are, we are within the wormhole now. And this podcast, though, that we're about to introduce you to is about porn. So we're taking that, another surprising turn, perhaps, for ACA Media. Uh, the tagline for this podcast, the Porno Cultures Podcast, is the show where we think about pornography rather than just react to it. And this is coming from us courtesy of Brandon Arroyo. And let me real quick give you his bio. He is a PhD candidate in film and moving image studies at Concordia University. His dissertation is an affective study of contemporary gay male pornography. And he is been published multiple times in the Porn Studies Journal, writing about the pornographic mediascape of Montreal's gay village, surfing pornographic tube sites, and analyzing the transmedia persona of viral Leave Britney Alone YouTube sensation Chris Crocker. Uh, He is currently co-editing an anthology with Tom Waugh about sexual confessions over the last 25 years entitled I Confess, which is under contract with McGill Queen's Press. Should be out in 2018. He is also the recipient of an SCMS Student Writing Award in 2014. So he's got a lot of really great stuff going on, including this podcast. He is keeping very, very busy. 
Uh, but this podcast is is the uh, little bit that we're going to be able to share with you. So let's check it out. We should probably yeah. say it's about yes. porn. We should. Yes, it is called Porno Cultures Podcast. So it is about porn. Um, and just slight not safe for work. Uh, he goes along with another scholar, Whitney Strube, walks through an actual porn theater. And there is a little bit of moaning going on. So just so you know, don't listen to this. You know, really out loud in a public place, because there will be some moaning. Giddy up. Hi, I'm Brandon Arroyo, and thanks for listening to this excerpt from my new show titled The Porno Cultures Podcast. My desire to create this show grew out of my frustration that the academic topic that I was most interested in, pornography studies, was mostly absent from the podcast landscape. Sure, there are plenty of podcasts that address sex and pornography, but rarely do they ever bother to incorporate the vast amounts of work done by academics, which would only broaden their perspective of the genre beyond the reactionary. Within the media, pornography is either the worst thing that's ever happened to humanity, or it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. Discourse about pornography, as usual, is begging for nuance. Therefore, I wanted to create a podcast where listeners are presented with an opportunity to think about pornography rather than just react to it. I also wanted to be able to point to this podcast as an accessible example of what pornography studies is. As you might imagine, when I tell people that I'm doing my PhD on pornography, they look at me as if I have a third eyeball growing out of the middle of my forehead. After all, self-interest is the mother of all invention. We have a lot of great guests coming up on the show, including Rebecca Sullivan, David Church, Noah Sika, Lynn Comella, Elena Gorfinkel, and my advisor at Concordia University, Tom Waugh. We're also featuring guests working outside of academia whom help us think about pornography in different ways within our wider culture, including Ashley West and April Hall, who are the hosts of The Rialto Report, which is a podcast featuring interviews with the players of the porno chic era, Rick Storer, who's the executive director of the Leather Museum and Archive in Chicago, and Zachary Shire, who's the editor of the gay porn blog, Straight Up Gay Porn. For this exclusive excerpt, I have selected clips from the first two episodes of the podcast, the first being from my interview with Peter Alalunis, where I talked to him about how he came to pornography studies and where he describes what it was like inside a Times Square pornographic video bar in the early 1970s, which he writes about in greater detail in his book, Smutty Little Movies, The Creation and Regulation of Adult Video, 1976-1986. through in the second clip, I go on an audio tour of a pornography theater in Newark, New Jersey with Whitney Strube, who's a professor at Rutgers University, Newark, and the co-editor of the anthology Porno Chic and the Sex Wars, American Sexual Representation in the 1970s. The name of the theater is The Little Theater, and they've been showing pornography since the 1970s. It looks like, unfortunately, it will soon fall victim to Newark's rapid gentrification. So I was lucky to get to see it, and I thought it was important to capture a bit of the experience within the podcast before it closes. I hope that these clips encourage you to join me on this podcasting adventure. You can find the Porno Cultures podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, or on the website, pornocultures.podomatic.com. You could also follow us on Twitter, at Pornocultures, or on Facebook.com slash Academic Sex. So first up, here's Peter Alanis.
how do you feel about the reception of the book so far? And why do you think it took so long for a detailed history of porn's transition from film to video? Why did it take so long for the narrative really to come to light through your book in really a concise way? Considering that you make the bold statement that the history of home video is the history of adult video. It seems like this book really is like 35 years in the making, yet it's only yeah. coming into fruition now. I love your phrase, it's a book 35 years in the making, because that's really true. The story is that when I was in my first year of graduate school at the University of Michigan, my eventual advisor, Dan Herbert, needed a research assistant for his book project. And I had worked in video stores, and so I thought, that's perfect for me. And so I applied for the job and got the job. And the first thing he had me do was read everything ever written about home video scholarship, which didn't take very long, maybe like a few weeks. Pretty small field at the time. At the end of all this reading, I went back to him and said, where's all the stuff about pornography? And he said, well, why would anybody care about that? And I, I was like, well, I worked in video stores in the 90s. I remember how important that was. Now, at the time, I did not identify as a pornography studies scholar at all. During my MA training at Texas, I was really interested in gender studies and masculinity. And I had written an MA thesis on Vince Vaughn and the movies of sort of the frat pack. He's very masculine. Yeah, yeah and I, I loved this idea of like thinking about <clears throat> new modes of masculinity that are actually not new modes at all. They're the same old thing. But I did take a, one class with Janet Steiger there on pornography studies, and it stayed with me. And that's when I thought it would be a very good and productive dissertation to write about the history of adult video. And that's when I became interested in pornography study. What was it uh, yeah. about that experience in the video store that touched you so much? Because usually I mean, you have jobs and then you leave them and you forget them. What was it so particular about that job that you loved? That's a good question because I think this actually all ties together. And it's the idea of regulation and how different kinds of regulation affect people's sexualities. I vividly remember at Silver Star Video in Eugene, Oregon, where I worked in the late 90s, we'd have to call people about late rentals. And I vividly recall calling an answering machine once and having to say, our copy of But Bongo Babes is overdue. And about an hour later, a woman comes storming into the store and says, my husband definitely did not rent this tape. Oh, wow. And I had to be like, well, somebody on your account rented this tape. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And those moments really are fascinating to me Absolutely. because of the way people are kind of afraid of sex. And that's a huge topic, right? Like sure, we could sure. talk for days about what that means. But yeah, the, the, the video store with its two sections, there's the porn section that's private and then everything else is out in the open. All those things fascinate me yeah, endlessly. Yeah, yeah. The social dynamics of the actual store. Totally. I remember, you know, going to stores as well in the early days. I mean, there would, there would be a section. There was this wonderful video store in Manhattan World of Video in uh, right on Greenwich Avenue that had a huge porn section. You'd see people somehow leaving with like 10 tapes. I'm like, I don't know how you're going to have the time. You can, <laughs> you can only rent them for three days yet. I, you know, yes. they're, they're living much more exciting lives than me, I'm sure. I would like to start the podcast off with guests telling us about, you know, their first encounter with pornography, but you actually beat yeah. me to the punch when you recall an awkwardly <laughs> charming story uh, you have in the backseat of your family's car while your father goes to a local convenience store. Would you mind kind of rehashing that story and maybe explaining why it's so crucial to the narrative of this book? Yeah. So this is in about 1986, which is actually an important detail. Well, for my father as well. That's the last time the Mets won the World Series. <laughs> It was a big year in 1986. Year. Yeah. So we were, I grew up in Moscow, Idaho, and we were driving after church one day. My 
parents are evangelical Christians. And so we were driving home from church and we pulled into the parking lot of what I think was probably a 7-Eleven. Mm. And my dad said, Peter, let's go inside for a minute and get some ice cream. And my mom and sister stayed behind in the car. And we got into the store and we bought the ice cream bars. And then my dad asked to see the manager. And I was so confused. Like, what is happening right now? What was happening is my dad wanted to complain to the store manager about Playboy magazine. And he did so really politely. And my father's a very soft-spoken guy. And he did it really politely and nicely. And then we went back out to the car and went home. And I just remember thinking... What is happening right now? And you—you you said you were nine years old. Well, I was about. T- well, in in eighty six, I would have been twelve. So you yeah. have you have some sort of idea what pornography oh, yeah. is. Yeah. Oh yeah. So yeah, I wanted to get home and debrief with my sister, uh, who was a little older and a little more streetwise, about what was happening. By nineteen eighty six, we had already taken a family vacation to New York City, and my mother had shielded my eyes in Times Square. Mm -hmm. I had seen sex workers on the street, and my mother had been terrified. But this incident really has stayed with me over the years. The complaint, Mm -hmm. the idea that a private citizen could complain about pornography and somehow have the right to do that really has stayed with me over the years. Yeah. So you go on to describe a fascinating type of skid row of innovative theaters in Times Square that feature porn, screening rooms, and booths utilizing video intelligence technology in 1971, starting off with the first theater that opened called Channel 69, which was the first video theater open uh, in New York. And alongside it were three gay video theaters, Channel X, Adonis, Cinema Club, and Tomcat, all featured featuring video content. Once again, 1971. Channel uh, 69 gave you access to their bank of televisions for $2. And what I found most remarkable about their story is that they actually produce their own content. Though about them producing their own content, there is a very funny quote that talks about the type of footage that's actually shown on (laughs) these things. From Screw Magazine's Peter Brennan, who describes these productions as such, quote, Not only can't you see the fine details of anatomy, but the color rendition is terrible. Flesh comes off in various shades of orange and green, and the screen is so small you can't just sit back and get engulfed in the sexual activity. You have to keep straining to see. Moreover, no attempt is being made to use the creative possibilities of videotape. The program consists mostly of unedited clinical close-ups of cocks pumping away in cunts and mouths. Ouch, that's a scary right? review. <laughs> yeah, that description has always jumped out at me as proving the idea that people's desire for sex media is always so great that it overcomes technological it's distraction, boundless, right? Boundless. So, yeah, I mean, I would love to have more detail about this skid row. And what kind of experience did you get when you walked into Channel 69? So when I was just starting this research, I found Joseph Slade's article about Theaters in Times Square. I think it's actually called Theaters in Times Mm -hmm. Square from 1971. And it's a great ethnography, personal history of his own experiences there in the adult movie theaters, plus a little bit of commentary about pornography at the time. It was a really important article published in Transaction Magazine. When I read this article, I was sitting in the basement of the library at the University of Michigan doing lots and lots of reading that day. And about six pages into the article, he says that the quality in the theaters is better than the quality in the locations showing homemade adult videotapes. I jumped out of my chair in the basement of the library because there's a reference to homemade videotapes in 1971. The first 
Betamax is sold in December of 1975. I could not understand what he was talking about. And unfortunately, he doesn't have a lot of detail. He just says that there's a handful of spaces in New York showing homemade adult videotapes. Well, this turned into a years long obsession for me. It became the holy grail of my research to figure out what the hell he was talking about. Now, Professor Slade is not only still alive, he's still working. I immediately reached out to him in Indiana. Unfortunately, his memory this many years later is not great. So, so he never, he, his whole work wasn't focused on pornography. Well, it was, but he had no notes from that day. Oh, okay. He just couldn't remember anything about it. And so I spent years trying to unpack this. Now, on the eve of the publication of my book, literally days before I had to have the final page proofs finished, Eric Schaefer... The legendary, the great Eric Schaefer, close friend of mine, emails me out of the blue. I've never told anyone this story before. With a scan from Screw Magazine and a very simple email that just says, you might find this of use. And what that article in Screw Magazine was the answer to the question I had been searching years for, which is to say the names and addresses and information and details about those video theaters in New York in 1971. And that unlocked for me the mystery of where to go look for all the rest of the information. And that was it. That was all I needed. Once I had that, I furiously spent the next few days doing as much research as I could to get that book finished. So I did find all this stuff, this information about these spaces and these theaters. And it turns out they were only in operation for a few months. And Slade... The that I mentioned. Yeah, and oh, wow. Slade happened to go to them while they were open for those few months and write about them. Wow. So when you say a history 35 years in the making, there really is a line here from Slade's visit in 1971 to the publication of his article in Transaction Magazine to me writing this book and all of us remembering those spaces now as the pioneering groundbreaking things they were, right? Ch Channel 69 was on the second floor of a building that's still there today. It's a French restaurant now. Tiny little room, smaller than this hotel room we're, we're doing this interview in. At one end of the room was a, t a television set sitting on the floor. And then the rest of the room was wooden chairs. And you paid an entry fee and went Only in. Only one television. One television. Okay. And you sat at the end of the room and you watched these films on this one television set. Other spaces like the Adonis had multiple televisions. Kind of a bar atmosphere but they mm -hmm. did not have a liquor license mm -hmm. so you'd get kind of like an orange juice at the bar and maybe spike it yourself and then watch these films being played in this kind of bar environment and they were all out of business within two months they were all gone Incredible. within two months they weren't making money or people, the quality was bad or, I, I, well, I guess we don't know i think i think it was probably related to the quality i think people but there was no like crackdown or the police not that i've seen mm -hmm. yeah i think it was a combination of poor quality poor viewing environments and to be totally frank about it, I think people were having more success in the theaters getting the sexual experiences they wanted. You know, you That's go. True. Yeah, it's more interactive. Right. Yeah. So I think these very small video spaces did not have enough room for people to kind of, you know, get it on. Even the way you're describing it, it sounds very clinical, like a metal television with yeah, light. Right. And like it doesn't have the warmth of a, of a 35 millimeter yeah. of dark. It seems very clinical. Yeah. And bigger spaces, right? When you more read bigger, when you yeah. read Samuel mm -hmm. Delaney's descriptions, it's like. Who wouldn't want to go to these big, beautiful, warm rooms oh, with yeah, yeah. lots and lots of people? So, yeah, I agree with you.
Wit and Brandon here inside in the hallway of the little theater that smells like a drained pool. It does. So we'll open the door into the main hallway and theater. So yeah, you can see like I'm surprised at this point playing in the lobby. Two yeah. televisions. So technically there are three screens, but this counts as one of them. Oh okay. So the yeah, the big screen is in here. Um, I'll show you. So yeah, here's wow, it's big. Yeah, yeah, three hundred seats. Looks like we're screening Teen Wet Asses number two. So I'll show you back here is like this kind of uh, like sex hallway basically. It smells like cigarettes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So guys come back here and uh, like great, great head, tight white ass, Jersey City. Love it raw. Ah. And Reza, maybe? Contact info, maybe? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you can... Yeah, guys just kind of disappeared back here for so a the while. The white boys are being fetishized. White boy love. Yeah, yeah. Eat ass. So anyway, yeah, the, I don't think the exit there actually works, which I'm sure is probably a violation of code. So. I think the other one is not open. If you walk around down here, it's like here's what uh, was the ladies' room. Oh, goodness. Yeah, okay. kind of a dark room now. Looks like a, a set from Atomic Blonde. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the men's room there, if, you, I don't know if you're interested. Okay. And, then, and then here is the. Oh, holy shit, there used to be video game consoles here and they're gone. It's mm. a bad sign. So probably, well, we could probably find that a barcade across the street. I know, I know. That would actually be kind of amazing. Yeah, so this is the all-male room. And you can hear there's dark room back there. Is that a little bit of a, of a bathhouse setting? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sounds like a, yeah, sounds like a party. A success. <laughs> yeah, so that room is completely dark uh, in sort of old school porn theater, bathhouse kind of way. Anyway, so yeah, you get a sense of the kind of the scene. And watch your step here. More active than I would have thought. Yeah, yeah, what time is it? Like 2.30? Yeah, yeah, 240. Um, and I would say there's 15? 10, 15? Yeah, I'd say that's basically I'd say the headcount that I've got. And you said this has been here since the 20s? Uh, yeah, 1929 when it opened. So the sign's beautiful. I know, I know. So yeah, it's clearly in its dying days, but. You know, there's nothing... We can say that we were here? Yeah, I mean, there's nothing else like this. You know, the, uh, the acoustics are strange. It sounds like there's barely any volume. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I expected more in the way of audible moaning. I mean, that's... Wow, it's, basically, it's, it's great. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah I figured you'd appreciate yeah, it. Great, yeah. 
There's, there's more to Newark than Whole Foods. That is an apt summation. I want to thank Christine Becker, Michael Kackman, and the producers of Acme Media for being kind enough to invite me on the podcast. I'm forever grateful. And thank you all for taking the time to listen to the Porno Cultures podcast. Hopefully I'll be talking to you all soon. Wow. What'd you think of that, Michael? Okay, I actually have I have two big takeaways. Um, mm-hmm. One of them is that um, we really need to get out from behind our desks. I'm telling you, yes. You that, know, I mean, there's you, there's a whole world out there that you can uh, <laughs> take take your podcast to. Um, yeah, I, the idea of an audio tour, and especially, and I'll you know, I'm quite a prude. I I wouldn't walk into a porn theater, and yet I am really interested in yeah. that as a space. And so that was a really fantastic sort of voyeuristic, whatever the audio word for voyeuristic is, uh, journey through that space. Yeah, and the other thing is, we really need to be a little bit more quotable. <laughs> That last line there, I was wondering if, you know, because Bill or uh, Joel, either of them post our episodes each time and they pick out a quote from the episode to be our title, that, that last line there might be our title. I don't know. Now I've, now I've put my thumb on the scale, so maybe not. But, uh, but there's, there are other good ones, too, you know? It's like, yeah. smells like a drained pool. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's better than an undrained pool. Or, I, you know, I don't know, but... Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but it's and also richly so it, evocative. It, richly evocative and bodes well for the future of Brandon's podcast. So make sure to track that down. Porno Cultures Podcast. We will have links both to uh, Brandon's project as well as to Amanda Lotz's new podcast um, on our webpage at aka-media.org. Very good. Yes. And uh, you can also follow us on Twitter. We, we, we tweet less than we even put out podcasts, but you can follow us on Twitter at ACA underscore media over there on Twitter. And we've got a Facebook page and we're just overflowing with we're ways like, to. We're like all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I have been I was I was thinking about you just I'm, I'm not watching a lot of TV right now that isn't assigned for classes, but mm. started watching a little bit of The Crown, the uh ah, the, yes. the QE2 biodrama. Um, yeah. I'm only a couple episodes in, but it's been really interesting to to see how Netflix does BBC PBS. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a series that's about about um, the early years of of uh, QE two in the wake of the death of the king and um, a relationship with Winston Churchill and stuff like that. And um, they are so clearly trying to capture that um, that that kind of cultural formation of the 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 quality BBC historical drama that becomes mm. that becomes a signifier of PBS's. Uh, elite tastes Mm -hmm. but it's also kind of run through the netflix filter in terms of Mm -hmm. what kinds of stars we see and um and Mm -hmm. how the show positions itself so we have john lithgow as (laughs) winston churchill which of course would never happen if it was um if it was not um a u.s origin series yeah and it's the budget on that is way more than the BBC could ever, yeah. you know, like license fee payers would say, what the hell, if they were using the kind of budget Netflix is using. So super, and, and I think one of the most expensive things Netflix has done, if not the most expensive. So that's another 
you know, new spin, which of course is really tough for the BBC. There was actually just an article out today, I think, in the Guardian um, about the director general of the BBC, Tony Hall, saying we really have to look out now for Netflix and competition Uh from Netflix in ways that might be difficult for the BBC to compete with. And the idea of, you know, the BBC really needs to maintain its Britishness, but it's competing with Netflix, which to some extent is American, but also now entire um, sort of transforming itself into an international outlet. So you'll have the BBC having to compete with basically this, this, you know, really deep pocketed international outlet. And that's, that's a problem for the BBC. Yeah, which goes back to these kind of fundamental questions about the nature of television as a, mm. as a geographically, often nationally and culturally bounded um, medium. I mm. was um, I've been following the work of Graham Turner recently, and and been on panels with him a couple of times at recent conferences where he's been increasingly talking about what happened when Netflix moved into the Australian uh, media market. Um, because, mm-hmm. you know, Netflix as an internet distributed system is, has generally in terms of regulation been treated as, you know, it's not television, right? It's just a, it's a streaming service that is outside of um, regulatory reach. And, but this raises all kinds of questions about what a, what a national culture is, how that, how that culture mm. will be represented, who has access to kind of participate in, in, in those production processes. And there it's about distribution of non-Australian content in ways that's kind of similar to what's going on with the BBC and, and thinking about mm. what happens when, um, when that international content for the cord cutter becomes much more accessible than than um, than programming that is that is ostensibly of that culture. Yeah. Um, so it's tricky stuff. It re- it is really mm. tricky stuff. And and you know even right now in the U.S. we've got um, you know we had an election. I don't know if you wait. Did I miss an election? Did I miss something? Who's <laughs> you did probably I miss feel a like you've been gone long enough that that you could have <laughs> missed it. But um, no, obviously you were here for that. But yeah. Um, this week we have had the leaders of Facebook and mm. and Twitter and Google called into Congress to talk about um, about the role that that their platforms had in circulating political advertising and and essentially you know non advertising but political content that um, yeah. likely influenced the election and we have a really long history both culturally and and in regulation of policing access to uh, public venues, you know, hmm. broadcasting venues, um, by political speech, right? You know, that um, political ads have to say who they're, who they're sponsored by and, and that kind of stuff. Um, and we have very little of that kind of regulation for web-based content. Mm-hmm. And right now we're kind of going through this thing with um, – trying to figure out how to characterize this new medium in ways that goes back to the origins of television and to the origins of radio and even the debates surrounding wireless um, you know, mm. during the time of you know, World War I when there was this anxiety that wireless communication that transcended national boundaries could have profound political, military, national security implications. When it goes to show again that notion of how we label things, then will affect how we define them, how we regulate them, uh, how we understand how they affect us. So, um, which is to say, it is important what we do here. Yeah, Um, it matters. It matters. We matter. Um, Well, I also throw in a real quick plug, or maybe it's a 
tease then for the next episode, I could talk about it. Um, I'm hosting a symposium here at the uh, Notre Dame's London campus, and it is called uh, National Cultures of English Language Television Comedy. And the concept is kind of what we were talking about at the start with quiz shows, but in terms of TV comedy. So is there still something distinctive about British comedy, Irish comedy? Um, we've got Australia, New Zealand, um, and, and U.S. represented. And so we're bringing together, I think there's 14 scholars coming, and we have a keynote address from Brett Mills, who's talking about the notion of national identity being tied to TV comedy. So uh, I'll yeah. report back in our next oh, episode about okay. how all that went. That sounds interesting. I wish I could be there. Yeah, well, in anyone comes to one. Them, <laughs> Yeah, right. Well, just hop on a plane and come on over. That sounds November pretty good. November 16th and 17th. That does sound pretty good. Well, right, it well, is nice. It's nice to talk to you. We should do this more often. We should, like maybe once a month. That's oh, a good idea. About once a month. Okay, let's do it again. All right. Acomedia is produced with the support of ISLA at the University of Notre Dame, as well as the Department of Communication at Denison University. And we couldn't do this without the help also of SCMS, which gives us a grant to uh, help keep us afloat. And we have a fantastic production crew. We have the golden ears of Todd Thompson down in Texas and Bill Kirkpatrick down at Denison University. And we're also very grateful for the help we get from Stephanie Brown at University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and Joel Neville Anderson at University of Rochester. We're also grateful uh, to those who contributed content for this episode. Amanda Lotz at the University of Michigan. And Brandon Arroyo at Concordia University. Thank you for the audio, not audio-visual content, for the audio content, both of you. We really appreciate it. You know, the thing about audio content is that the yes. pictures are so much better, right? Yes, on that note, look for us next month. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening. <laughs>